Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 1 and verse 14. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14. From time to time, we have a desire that is fulfilled, a goal that we reach. And um, uh, one of the uh, goals is getting through school, right? Graduation is upon us uh, before too long, and uh, our kids will be graduating, college students will be graduating. Uh, I remember graduating from college, that was a, a special day. Uh, I remember also uh, when we had planned and we had our first child and then our second child. And uh, what, a, what a blessing it is to have those desires and goals fulfilled. But God had an eternal goal, an eternal plan that he wanted to see fulfilled. And before the world was even created in the heart and mind of God was his eternal plan. Knowing that we would sin and knowing that we would fall short of the glory of God, he sent Jesus, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. And Jesus came and he was born of a virgin and he lived a perfect life and he died on the cross at Calvary to pay the price for sin and he rose again and he ascended to the right hand of the Father and he's coming again. This is the eternal plan of God. This plan of God was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. God showed aspects of, the, of his great plan in things like the tabernacle, uh, things like uh, the prophetic work of the prophets, the priestly work of the priests, uh, the ruling work of kings. And God fulfilled his plan 2,000 years ago, in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what this scripture is about today. We're going to talk about how Jesus fulfills the plans and intentions of God. And how he brings the forgiveness and the restoration of relationship that we have with God like no one else. Look with me at verse 14 of John chapter 1. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, the fulfillment of God's eternal plan. That's the title of my message. How does God fulfill His eternal plan in Jesus. Well, he sent Jesus, first of all, to be the divine man. Pray for me, would you? (laughs) That cedar tree cloud in in Andersonville, I think, came my way. All right. How does God fulfill his eternal plan in Jesus? Well, he sent Jesus, first of all, to be the divine man. The divine man. The Word, verse 14 says, the Word became flesh. This is incredibly significant. 
God sent Jesus, the eternal God the Son, to be born of a virgin, to be a man. That's very significant. Why? Well, in order for us to be saved, Jesus had to die on the cross. In order to be our substitute and to fulfill the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, Jesus had to be a man. He came and he was perfectly spotless in his thinking, in his words, in everything that he did. And he became the substitute sacrificial lamb for us at the cross Physically dying upon the cross. There were nails put in his hands and his feet. A crown of thorns placed upon his head. He was scourged, fulfilling Isaiah chapter 53 and part of chapter 52 as well. Psalm 22. All of these things fulfilled in Jesus because he came as a man. Jesus was fully God, as we've we've already studied in John chapter 1. But he's also fully man. Everything that it meant to be a man, he was, except for sin. And his full divinity and his full humanity were perfect in one person. Um. Jesus didn't become a second-class God when he became a man. He was still fully God. He didn't become a second-class man because he was God. He was complete in his humanity and in his deity. And what that means is Jesus can understand the things that we go through. I was talking to somebody this past week who had gone through a great loss and and uh, was reminded that over and over, I've heard this in ministry, people sharing the, the griefs and the heartaches they've had and how they are able to identify with other people going through the same thing. I remember uh, when, uh, when Megan went through her sickness as a little girl, um, ever since then, I've had a tender spot in my heart for parents whose kids are sick. And uh, it's amazing. I'll, I'll lift them up in prayer. Sometimes I don't even know them. And I'll lift them up in prayer because I identify with what they're going through. Jesus, because he was a man, identifies perfectly with you and me. The Bible says he was tested in every way just as we are yet without sin. Tempted in every way just as we are yet without sin. So he has gone through what you've gone through, but far more because he went to the cross. Jesus has experienced the suffering like no one else. In bearing the wrath and justice of God in his heart, the alienation from his father at the cross. He's experienced the greatest emotional pain, the greatest spiritual pain that anyone who has ever lived has experienced. And then he died physically and understood the suffering physically that we experience. And the Bible says he ever lives to make intercession for us. 
Isn't that a wonderful truth? So Jesus fulfills God's eternal plan because he's the divine man. God entered into our experience to redeem us. Not just to pay the price for sin, though he did that, but also to bring about a relationship like could never be experienced otherwise through Jesus' work. The body of Jesus means that he understands us. The deity of Jesus means he's able to help us in life. And what a wonderful truth that is. So he is our divine man. I remember being sent to a specialist for my allergies. (coughs) How fitting to talk about that. Um, The doctors had tried to help me because I was getting a sinus infection every six weeks. Finally, the doctor said, hey, I'm going to send you to a specialist. And it is amazing the difference that came when I went to the specialist. Because he knew exactly what I was going through and how to solve it. And, uh, you know, we do that. We, we take our cars sometimes to a specialty car mechanic because they work on a certain type of car. We recognize they understand how to deal with that. Jesus understands how to deal with the human condition because he has experienced it, but also because he designed us and made us. He is uniquely equipped to bring salvation to the human soul. He is uniquely uniquely equipped to sustain us in life. There's no one like him. He is the greatest of the great, the highest of the high, and he is able to be with us and, and, and provide exactly what we need in every season of life. I like that scripture. It says, I'm, I'm young, or I was young, and now I'm old, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their seed begging for bread. No matter what season of life you're in, Jesus is enough. He is the divine man. Bring your burdens to him. Bring your soul to him if you're lost. Bring your sin to him and ask him for his forgiveness. Repent of your sin. Put your trust in him. And he will change you from the inside out. You will be spiritually born again. Only the divine man can do that. No one else can do that. No one else can change the human heart. Jesus has a unique ability to do so because he's the divine man. So the fulfillment of God's eternal plan, how does he do that? We sent Jesus to be the divine man. Secondly, he sent him to be the living tabernacle. The living tabernacle. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is actually used in the the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. It's actually used to describe the coming down of God's glory upon His tabernacle and upon His temple. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. We'll talk about that in a second. But he dwelt among us. This is language just like came out of the time of the Exodus. Jesus is the living 
tabernacle. Later on, Paul spoke of Christians, and he says, Don't you know that you're the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you? If you, if you know Christ, you know that His Spirit dwells within us. But Jesus was the living tabernacle, capital T, okay? The living temple, capital T, because Jesus was God. So that when we see Jesus, you and I, we, we reflect his glory. We with unveiled faces, Corinthians says, reflect his glory. Jesus was his glory. When they looked at Jesus, they saw a perfect representation of who God was. And what is interesting about that is when the, when the, when the Shekinah glory came down on the temple... And came down on the tabernacle. The Bible says that the glory was veiled in a cloud. But they could also recognize that God had come. Because nobody could enter into the tabernacle. Nobody could enter into the temple. Because the glory of God had settled upon it. And was overwhelming in its power and its majesty. But it was also veiled. It was revealing and veiling. The same thing is true of Jesus. You remember that, uh, that old hymn, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, Hail the incarnate deity. That's, a, that's good theology. Jesus was veiled in his flesh. Now, the transfiguration happened. Uh, uh, other Gospels uh, mention this transfiguration that happens with Peter, James, and John where Jesus' glory shines through a little bit and he gives them just a little glimpse of his supernatural glory as God the Son. But not the full dose because no one can see God and die. But they'll die. They can't see him and live. And so uh, Jesus' flesh veiled the resplendent glory of his person. Ask John. John, in, in the book of Revelation, he tells us that when he saw the exalted Christ in his vision, he was so overcome that he fell to his face and could not rise. He was so weak and he was so overwhelmed by the glory of God that he saw in Jesus Christ. He had to have an angel come touch him and strengthen him so that he could even stand up. That's how great the glory of God was. In Jesus Christ. But that glory was veiled in his flesh. But it was also revealed. Now here's the thing. What did Jesus come to reveal? As the living tabernacle, Jesus reveals the character of God. So John says, we beheld his glory. As the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. But this glory was experienced through their relationship with Jesus. Now, the tabernacle was a picture of the barrier between a holy God and a sinful people. You had three veils. You had the veil at the entrance of the courtyard. You had the veil at the entrance of the holy place. And you had the veil at the entrance of the Holy of Holies. 
when they did the temple, they, they replaced the veils of the courtyard and the holy place with doors. But there was still a veil over the Holy of Holies. You say, well, why do I care about that? Well, because when Jesus was on the cross, that veil was ripped. Because Jesus had made a way for us to enter into God's presence. You see, the tabernacle was just giving us a glimpse into the plan of God. The plan of God was not to leave the veil there. That's why he, he had woven into the veil... The picture, the, the color of the blood, the, the cherubim and the mercy seat and all of these things were, were wrought into this veil because it was a picture of Christ redeeming work at the mercy seat for our sin that would one day rip the veil and make it possible for us to enter into God's very presence. But the tabernacle was not only a picture of separation, it was also a picture of redemption. Five different offerings were offered on the altar of burnt offering in the courtyard of the tabernacle. And in each of these offerings, uh, sin would be confessed over a substitute animal. The animal would be killed as an offering to God. And there were different aspects of the work of redemption, which I don't have time to get into. And each one of these different sacrifices that were offered. But it was a full work that was done, and every sacrifice offered there looked forward to Christ. He would fulfill it perfectly as the living tabernacle. When Jesus Christ was hanging upon the cross, he said, before he went, he said, no one takes my life, I lay it down willingly. As our divine priest he laid his life down as the perfect sacrifice. As he suffered on the cross, he fulfilled the burnt offering. Uh, as the wrath of God was poured out upon his soul, the burning wrath of God for all mankind, for all eternity in a moment of time, poured out upon Jesus Christ at the cross. As the Father turned his back in disgust as our sin was laid upon him, Jesus fulfilled the role of our guilt offering. He took our guilt and he made restitution to God for it. As, as our sin was placed upon him, he became our sin offering that would atone and cleanse and purify our sin so that we could have fellowship with God. As Jesus was separated from his Father, he became our peace offering or fellowship offering, restoring fellowship by repentance and faith in Him to the Father. All of this was done on the cross for you and me. It was the fulfillment of God's eternal plan. When you look at the sacrificial system and you look at the, the clean and unclean laws that show us how easy it is to get unclean and the process that needs to be, to, to, takes to be clean, all of this points to Jesus, who is the perfect, clean vessel of God who died for us so that we could be cleansed. And he gives us a hope and a future. One day we're going to enter into heaven. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth eventually where, where Jesus and righteousness reigns. And the Bible says there will be no temple. Because God the Father and the Lamb 
or the temple. (laughs) And there'll be no light because God the Father and God the Son will be shining in their resplendent glory to give light to the world. And there will be a city unlike we've ever seen that that will reflect with all the beautiful gems and all of the things that it's made with, will reflect this brilliant glory of God. And we'll have glorified bodies, so we'll be able to take it. We'll be able to actually see the full glory of God. What a day that's going to be. Um, This is God's eternal plan. A number of places God says, I will be their God, and they will be my people. This has always been God's heart. Sin got in the way of that. Jesus came to take care of the problem of sin so that God could be our God. We could be his people and have a relationship with him. The book of Revelation tells us that uh, that is fulfilled through the work of Jesus Christ and the coming of his new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem. It's fulfilled in the hearts of people who put their trust in Jesus today. But we receive the down payment here, and the full payment is yet to come when, when we uh, enter into our eternal state with the Lord. God will be with us. We will be his people. He will be our God. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no sickness, no crying, no pain, no death. This is the eternal plan of God. And Jesus fulfills it. The Word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled with us. So, come to Jesus for salvation. He's the only way to enter into heaven. Come to Jesus for fellowship when you're broken and confess your sin and ask Him to fill you with His Spirit. He is able as our living tabernacle to bring us into fellowship and to to bless us with those heavenly blessings. So the fulfillment of God's eternal plan, how does he fulfill it? He sent Jesus to be the divine man. He sent Jesus to be the living tabernacle. And finally, the revealed glory. The revealed glory. I've spoken a little bit about this, but look at verse 14. He says, we observed his glory. Glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. They were observing Jesus on a day-by-day basis. Wouldn't that have been amazing? Uh, Sometimes I I wish I could have been there to kind of see these things happening. We have the record of it in the Gospels. We can read about that. But what what an amazing blessing to... To see Jesus interacting with people and and all the things that he did. I imagine there were times where they were complexed or perplexed. They were confused. Sometimes they were blessed. Sometimes they were excited. Sometimes they were convicted. As they saw Jesus, it totally challenged who they were and changed the course of their lives. These, these men who came from one, Matthew is a tax collector, uh, Peter and, and uh, James and John and sons of Zebedee, uh, fishermen. All these, they came from different paths of life. 
but their life would never be the same because they observed Jesus Christ. They heard what he said, they saw what he did, and their lives were radically transformed. We observed his glory. It's one thing to see a beautiful, glorious temple. Solomon's temple was an amazing sight to behold. It was uh, covered with gold. It was brilliant. And Jerusalem was on a hill. So as you traveled to Jerusalem, you could see the splendor of the temple as you ascended the hills to worship. Jesus' glory, though, was of a different kind. Uh, the, the prophet Isaiah said he had no form or, or splendor that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected. Uh, it, it, we, we esteemed him not. We considered him by, afflicted by God. But he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. So you see... Jesus' outward splendor wasn't like that of the temple. His body was ordinary. That ought to give ordinary people all over the world hope, right? (laughs) Jesus looked ordinary. Uh, But Jesus wasn't ordinary. He was extraordinary. (laughs) And the glory they saw in his actions, in his words, was unlike anything they'd ever seen before. Can you imagine what it must have been like to see the demoniac? You know, here, this man, he's been, he's naked. Number one, that'd get your attention, right? So then he's, he's cutting himself with, with stones, and he's, he's crazy. He's acting crazy. He's, he's demonized by a legion of demons. Hopeless. Nobody could bind him with chains. He would bust the chains apart. He would run between the tombs, and he was alone, and he was afflicted every day of his life. But I imagine the disciples, as they saw him run up to Jesus, must have been afraid. We've heard about this guy. What's going to happen now? And then the man falls at Jesus' feet, and he says, Don't don't send us into the abyss. Send us into some pigs. (laughs) <laughs> those unfortunate pigs. And, uh, and Jesus does so. But, but these demons were quivering in fear before Jesus. They beheld the glory of his power in that moment of time. Or when he spoke to the winds and waves and said, Peace, be still, and there was a calm. Or when he walked on top of the water. Or when he fed 5,000. I think the disciples were awed and amazed. And, and part of this was beholding the glory of God. But then there was Jesus' teaching. Jesus taught like no one else. I love the story of the the servants that are sent to arrest Jesus, the temple servants, told to go arrest him by his enemies. And they get there and they are so spellbound by what they hear. Instead of arresting him, they, they, they stand there and they listen. 
And they're so impacted by it, they forget to arrest him. And they, they leave and they go back and they say, well, where's Jesus? He said, well, we've never heard a man talk like this before. We didn't bring him. We lost track of everything. We were spellbound as we heard him teach. You see, Jesus taught not like the scribes and Pharisees who quoted some obscure rabbi from the past. Jesus spoke with authority as the Son of God. And he opened, as a 12-year-old boy, he was asking questions and challenging the doctors uh, who, who worked in the temple and, and, uh, and having a great discussion with them. But, but, I mean, he opened up the Scriptures as no one had ever opened them up because he was the author. <laughs> but I'm convinced that even that was not the greatest glory that they observed as they saw Jesus' life. I think the greatest glory was when they observed Jesus' response to sinners. Think of the woman uh, who came to the well at an awkward time because she didn't want to be around the other women who were gossiping about her. And giving her strange looks and, and so forth. And, and, and she, she begins to uh, draw some water. And Jesus says, give me a drink. And you know she, she says, why are you asking me that? You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. Why would you ask me that? And he says, I've got some living water. And uh, uh, you know, well, you got living water. Yeah, I'll give you some to drink. Well, and you'll never be thirsty again. And so she kinda, she's kind of intrigued. And she has this discussion with him. And finally... Jesus says, go get your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. He said, yeah, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. And the one you're with right now is not your husband. She said, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. (laughs) And uh, uh, they begin to have a a conversation about worship. But anyway, the the woman's life has changed. And, And she goes and she tells the townspeople, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they come out, and that whole town of Samaritans comes to faith in Jesus. His love for sinners. Uh, How about the tax collectors and sinners that were were saved? They were Matthew's buddies. okay? Because remember Matthew, he was a tax collector. Jesus says, follow me, and Matthew leaves his lucrative tax business to, to go follow Jesus. And, and he's, I guess, you know, the Bible, I'm using a little imagination here. The Bible doesn't really tell us all this, but the Bible says that he had a big banquet with all his friends, and Jesus came to the banquet. And guess who they were? Tax collectors, sinners. And Jesus didn't skip the meeting. And the religious leaders didn't like it because he was associating with these people. No, Jesus loved them. And he sought to reach them with the message of the gospel. They are why he came. How about the Syrophoenician woman who came and was asking Jesus to help her and 
and uh, somebody was mentioning this this week is in the news. Uh, G- Jesus uh, said, "You don't take the children's bread and give it to dogs." And she said, "Well, even the dogs, Gentile dogs, eat the crumbs that come under their master's table." And Jesus says, "Great is your faith, woman. Go, go your way, and you have your request." And uh, it, this wasn't prejudice. Jesus was showing the Jewish people they didn't have the faith that she had. But here she is, a Gentile, an outcast. In the eyes of the Jewish people. And Jesus redeems her soul. And gives her a new beginning. Through faith in him. What about Mary Magdalene? Prostitute inhabited by seven demons. As a lost person. Jesus redeemed her soul. She became the first woman. First person. To see the resurrected Christ. What an amazing grace. You see, this is what they saw. And, and, and this is not the extent of it all. We have a few representative stories. John tells us the books, the world couldn't hold the books that would be written about him. They saw this every day. And they were blown away. They said, they said uh, we, verse 14, we observed his glory. Glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's just full of it. It's coming out of his ears. He's so full of grace and truth. And they recognized that he was the one and only Son. By seeing how he taught, by seeing what he did, by hearing the grace and the mercy that he showed to sinners. They said, this is, this is someone who is like no one else. Not only was he the begotten son, as, as God uh, makes him his kingly Messiah, but he is the one and only son. Both ideas are, are included in the word. He's the one and only son. He's the son like no other. You and I are children of God, but we're children of God by adoption. Jesus is the one and only son. He is the unique son. There's no one like him. And and the disciples, they said, well, yeah, Moses was a great guy. Samuel was a great guy. Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel were great guys. But I want to tell you something. There has not been a man that has taken a breath that is like Jesus Christ. He's the greatest of the great. We've seen what he's done. We've heard what he's teach, what he taught. And... We've seen his power. There is no one like him. Jesus comes as our divine man, our living tabernacle, and our revealed glory to help show us who God is, to show us God's heart of mercy toward us, but also to help us trust him. The disciples blew it. They they misunderstood Jesus many times. But they put their trust in him. And Jesus did a work. He sent his spirit at Pentecost. And, and those 12 men, with all their, their foibles, uh, they, through the power of the Holy Spirit, turned the world upside down. This was all the work of Jesus fulfilling the eternal plan of God. I want to tell you something. God has a plan for you personally. To know him. 
Jesus made it possible. He was wounded for our transgressions so that we could be forgiven. He was separated from his Father in relationship on the cross so that we could be reconciled. All of it's made possible by Jesus. And he asked us to repent of our sin. That is to make a choice to turn from our sin in our own way to follow him. And to receive his eternal life by receiving Jesus. And if you've not done that, I want to encourage you to do that today. Just say, Lord, I choose. I surrender to you. I choose to follow you. And I receive your grace. And on the authority of God's word, he'll save your soul. He'll save your soul. If you're here today as a child of God, um, recognize that God's eternal purpose was you. Isn't that an amazing thought? His purpose was to make a way for you to enter into relationship with him through Jesus. Wow. Thank him for what he's done. Praise his name for his goodness and his grace. Take hope and take heart because Jesus is coming to fulfill. We've got the down payment. He's coming to give us the full dose. Praise him. For his goodness and his grace. Won't it be an amazing day when we're able to stand before our resurrected Savior. And cast crowns at his feet. To honor him as the one who is worthy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the amazing grace that you show to us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for his coming to fulfill the eternal plan of God. And Lord, I pray that any who don't know Christ today would would say right now, Lord, I choose to turn from my sin in my own way to follow you. Trusting you to help me with that. But I also receive Jesus into my life right now. I receive his forgiveness. I receive his grace. And I trust you to keep your promise to save me. And Father, I pray that everyone that has prayed that, Lord, would would, um, grow in you and fulfill the plans you have for them and and, uh, baptism and spiritual growth and uh, uh, serving you and all of these things. Father, I pray that we as your people would never forget the amazing grace that you've shown us. And the incredible price that was paid for our redemption in Jesus' blood. Help us never to lose our sense of awe and amazement.